clearly is. And so before we work our way through it, I want to get in our minds uh, who each character in the story represents. Most of these probably are pretty obvious just by reading it, uh, but let's go through these quickly. First of all, the man who planted the vineyard represents God. Uh, the vineyard represents the nation of Israel. You can see all of that from Isaiah chapter 5. The tenants of the vineyard are the Jewish leaders, and maybe specifically the scribes and the chief priests in, that Jesus was talking to, because you remember at verse 19, it says, they perceived that he told this parable against them. Okay, so they are the religious leaders, the tenants of the vineyards. The servants sent to Israel are the prophets throughout Israel's history. And finally, the son, of course, represents Jesus, the son of God. And so with those pieces in place, the parable really becomes quite clear. Let's begin in verse 9, which says, He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. The planting of the vineyard, as we've said, is God choosing the nation of Israel. It's clear throughout the Old Testament that God had chosen Abraham and then his son Isaac and then Jacob and all of Jacob's descendants to be his people, his nation, a special people among all the nations of the world to reveal himself. Moses said to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 7, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, that's not to say that he chose Israel ultimately to be his only people. God's plan from the beginning was made clear as early as Genesis 12, when God said to Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I'm going to make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who honor, uh, dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So it wasn't about just having a little group of people in the world that God loved and who worshiped him. Uh, no, God's plan was always that through Israel, the world would come to know him. God reaffirms this to Jacob in Genesis 28. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Speaking of the nation of Israel, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Israel was just the beginning. Uh, the Jewish people were to make known the true God throughout the world and display lives of service and worship to him. Of course, they failed at this miserably. Uh, they often worshipped other gods and fell into sin. They broke God's commands many times. And so that ideal society that God had laid out for them in which he could live among them and they would follow in his ways was never perfectly realized. But God's plan was never to restrict his kingdom to Israel forever. He always intended that the whole world would be saved, that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation of the world would worship him. Israel was simply the beginning. But they were the chosen people of God in the Old Testament, the nation that God had selected to reveal himself through to the world. And so Jesus pictures the nation of Israel as this vineyard planted by God. Verse 10 says, when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, this is just like Isaiah, uh, where God says, I came expecting to get some grapes from my vineyard. Uh, but he was, of course, disappointed. It says there in verse 10, the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. He sent another servant. They also beat him and, and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And he sent a third. 
This one also, they wounded and cast out. It's clear that Jesus is here referring to the prophets, uh, men who were sent by God to Israel throughout their history. The prophets came to the nation of Israel and told them to repent of their sin, to turn to the true and living God, and to produce spiritual fruit in keeping with repentance. Supernatural fruit that would bring honor and glory to God. These were people like Elijah and Elisha, Isaiah and Jeremiah, John the Baptist. These and many others throughout the Old Testament were sent to Israel with words from God. You can find much of their messages toward the end of the Old Testament. The books from Isaiah to Malachi are almost completely comprised of these words of these prophets. And most of these prophets were rejected by Israel's leaders. The Jews would ignore their messages, reject them, often imprison them and treat them terribly. To be a prophet meant that you were likely not going to be popular in Israel. It was often only after the prophet had died, and then the people would see what they had foretold taking place in front of their eyes, and then they would realize that he was a prophet. They would go back and read their words. And so for centuries, God sent these prophets at various times to Israel, and they were mostly ignored. And think of what Jesus was just talking about in the previous section of Luke 20. Uh, remember last week, he had asked the religious leaders, is John the Baptist from heaven or not? And they wouldn't answer him. They had rejected John, just like all of Israel's leaders had always rejected the prophets sent to them. And so verse 13 says, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. And here we get to Jesus, the beloved son of God. That language may remind you of the baptism of Jesus, where God declares from heaven, you are my beloved son. God sends Jesus to the religious leaders of Israel. And the question is, will they receive him? Verse 14 says, When the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. This is the heir. Now, on first reading, that seems odd. Why would the tenants of the vineyard think that by killing the owner's son, they would be given the inheritance? Uh, well, there's really only one answer that makes any sense. They thought the owner was dead. That, that, that's why he hadn't come himself. That's why he had been sending servants. And now his son is coming as the heir of the inheritance to take what was rightfully his. And so these guys figure if we get rid of him, then we can keep all the fruit of the vineyard to ourselves. We can run this without any, anyone over us. Now this leads to a question. Of course, Jesus is here uh, represented by the son, and we know the tenants are the religious leaders of Israel. The question is, is Jesus claiming that the religious leaders before him knew who he was? That they, like the tenants, understood him to be the rightful king, and that's why they killed him, knowing exactly who he was. Let's look at a few verses from John's gospel, beginning in John 12, verse 42, which says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, believed in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You see, it wasn't a matter of evidence. Uh, Jesus had performed plenty of miracles to convince even the most skeptical person. But they just hardened in their opposition and disbelief. Because becoming a follower of Christ for them would require admitting that they were wrong and facing public shame. John 11, verse 47, this is right after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. It says, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. You see, they don't dispute the validity of his miracles. They know that Jesus is doing these things. But notice verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. 
And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They didn't want to lose their power, their positions of authority. And so they killed the son, not because they didn't know who he was, but because they did. And they did not want to submit to his rightful authority over them. They wanted to rule the vineyard themselves. These are the citizens back in Luke 19 who hated the king and said, we do not want this man to reign over us. Kill him so we can rule Israel. Kill the heir and we can have the vineyard to ourselves. And so it says in verse 15, they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And now the parable has just turned from historic to prophetic. Jesus has been recounting the history of Israel, rejecting the prophets time and time again. And now he is predicting that they are going to kill him. Uh, by the way, it's worthy of note at this point that Jesus was taken right outside of the city of Jerusalem to be killed. That's probably what is meant there uh, by being taken out of the vineyard. This is how God's people, Israel, responded to God sending his own son to them. They had rejected the prophets before Christ, and now they killed the son himself. And so the question is, in verse 15, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Or to ask it another way, how is God going to respond to this? Verse 16, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Once again, Jesus is making clear that judgment is coming to the city of Jerusalem. There can be no mistaking why. They had rejected God's messengers, and when God sent his own son to them, they crucified him. Jesus said in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your, left, your house is left to you desolate. Just like in Isaiah 5, Jesus is saying here, God is going to lift his hand of protection from off the nation of Israel and off of Jerusalem. and He's going to allow it to be trampled, to be laid waste. Remember Jesus' words of warning in the previous chapter, Luke 19. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you. They'll surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you to, down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And as we've said in the past, in AD 70, less than 40 years after Jesus spoke these words, Jerusalem was attacked by the Roman army. The temple was destroyed, and never since has a sacrifice been offered. No priesthood has existed in Israel in the 2,000 years since that day. No ceremonies, no high priests. The whole Jewish system was destroyed, and never again has it been restored. The tenants of the vineyard were replaced. The Jews lost their place of privilege as God's covenant nation. And so as you see throughout Paul's letters, God grafted into the kingdom Gentiles. This is what is meant 
In verse 16, when Jesus says he's going to come, he's going to destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. This is speaking of the kingdom opening up uh, outside of just Israel now to the other nations of the world, to the Gentiles. He said in Matthew 21, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. God is going to get his fruit from his vineyard. And if Israel uh, wasn't going to live the lives that they were called to, then the kingdom would be open to others. And this is us, the Gentiles, all the families of the earth. We are welcomed into the kingdom of God, and the Jews have lost their place of privilege. This is very, uh, a very common theme throughout Acts, and especially Paul's epistles, this transition of the kingdom being open to all people, not just Israel. Uh, for example, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel's, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near to the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the, the dividing wall of hostility. He's made Jews and Gentiles one in Christ, broken down the division there. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, talking about the, uh, how the Old Covenant, the Old Testament laws and regulations have been done away with, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you, speaking of us Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. By the way, note there the image of Jesus being the cornerstone on which the household of God is built. Because Jesus himself uses that same image in verse 16 of our text. Uh, back in verse 16, it says there, after Jesus explains that God is going to come, he's going to destroy Jerusalem, the temple, the whole Jewish system, give the kingdom to others. Notice how the people respond. It says, when they heard this, they said, surely not. They thought God was only their God, that he only cared about the Jews. The rest of the people could never be a part of his kingdom. Much less would God wipe out Jerusalem and the temple. And yet this is precisely what happened. Verse 17, he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Notice Jesus looks directly at them. The religious leaders, the ones back in verse 2 who were questioning his authority and saying, Who gave you the right uh, to, to do these things? Jesus looks at them straight in the eyes and says, Everyone, verse 18, who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Uh, the Jews had a saying that went like this. If a rock falls on a clay pot, the pot breaks. If a pot falls on a rock, the pot breaks. The stone destroys the pot without regard to whether it falls on something or whether something falls on it. And so by crucifying Jesus, the religious leaders were actually sealing their own fate. They would be destroyed because of their attempt to destroy him. Now, Jesus does something here that's quite clever. Uh, remember the triumphal entry 
Back at the end of chapter 19, Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and the people were shouting out these words from uh, Psalm 118, verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, here in Luke 20, probably just a day or two after, Jesus quotes from also Psalm 118, verse 22, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So he's saying that by rejecting him, these religious leaders would be destroyed. The power and authority that they held on to so dearly would be stripped from them. Like those tenants of the vineyard, uh, they would be destroyed and replaced. Now, all of this is really an answer to the question from last week. Back in verse 2, they had asked Jesus by what authority he had come into Jerusalem and driven out the people selling in the temple, and then he stood up and started teaching. All of this was in response to them challenging his authority. And after this parable, the answer is pretty obvious, isn't it? Jesus is the Son of God sent to them like the prophets before him. And their rejection of him was in reality a rejection of the God that they claimed to serve. And that God was now going to come and judge them severely for this. He's saying to them, if you kill me so that you can keep your control and your authority over Jerusalem and this whole system, God is going to destroy your city. He's going to destroy the temple. And more than that, he's going to remove you from his kingdom and break open the doors of the kingdom to the Gentiles. Now, as you might have guessed, uh, this wasn't one of Jesus' more popular parables. Uh, Verse 19 says, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. Uh, They knew exactly who Jesus was talking about. They knew who they were in the story. He looked straight at them when he gave the conclusion. They had rejected John the Baptist, as we talked about last week, And now they were plotting to kill the Son of God that was sent to them. And rather than heed the warning and repent, they doubled down and wanted to kill him even more. But again, they have the popularity of Jesus against them. The people are on Jesus' side for now. And so if they try to kill him now, the the crowds would protect him. So they have to come up with a way to get the people to turn on Jesus. And so verse 20 says, So they watched him and sent spies, pretending to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Uh, We'll see what happens with these spies in the next couple of weeks when they come and try to trip Jesus up and get him to say something that will get him in trouble. Uh, Spoiler alert, it doesn't go so well for them. Uh, When you try to outsmart Jesus with a battle of wits, that doesn't work out well for you. Uh, But they were looking for something that they could arrest him for, some sort of violation that would be a pretext for them to turn Jesus over to the authorities for a trial. They wanted him dead. One question that we ought to ask ourselves when we read scripture is, what does this passage teach me about God? And I think there are several lessons for us here. First of all, the incredible patience of God, how he just keeps sending messengers to Israel to get them to repent over and over through hundreds and hundreds of years. And then in the end, he even sends his own son. He could have wiped them out right after they rejected the first prophet, but God is patient with his people. The patience and mercy of God toward us is hard to overstate. Even after these people killed Jesus, God still extended the offer of mercy to them. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches to the very crowds of people who called for Jesus to be crucified. And he says to them in verse 36, the conclusion of his sermon, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, 
repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and be forgiven. Uh, these people who condemned Jesus to death, when they realized what they had done, they were given yet another opportunity. Over in Acts chapter 15, it's mentioned just in passing, uh, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, I mean, that should just leap off the page at us. There were Christians in the early church who were formerly Pharisees. Uh, the group that had uh, opposed Jesus throughout his life, some of them repented and received grace. By the way, we know one of these quite well, the Apostle Paul. Uh, he was a Pharisee. In fact, prior to his conversion, he went around from one city to the next, arresting Christians and bringing them to jail. And he was there standing at the, at the, at the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. And yet even he could be forgiven by God. He became a Christian, a pastor, a church planter. No sinner has gone too far for Jesus to cleanse all his sin and give him new life. So the question, what will the owner do? Well, after they reject his messengers and kill his son, he'll still give them opportunities to escape judgment. He'll send apostles to plead with them to repent and be forgiven. But in the end, God's judgment finally did come. And nobody could say it was unfair. Uh, God had been incredibly patient and merciful with them. Now, although our parable today has a lot to do with the nation of Israel, what's true of Israel is also true of us individually. Uh, Paul says in Romans 11, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. And so he's speaking directly to us, to us non-Jews. He says in verse 17, he starts to compare uh, Gentiles entering the kingdom to like a, an olive branch being grafted in. And so we're, we're, we're being, um, uh, if you are merged with the Jews into the kingdom of God. Verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off, speaking of Israel, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the, but the root that supports you. Then uh, you will say, verse 19, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. This is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Notice the application Paul makes. Yes, you've seen how God dealt with Israel, how he broke them off as his, you know, his special covenant people that he had this special relationship with. They were broken off so that you could enter in. And the lesson you should learn from that is don't become proud, uh, but fear. Fear God. Have reverence for him. Understand that God could do the same to you. Verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, again, speaking of Israel, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Such an important verse. Uh, kindness and severity. We serve a kind and severe God. Uh, those two words don't seem like they can really fit together. It seems like they wouldn't be describing the same person. How can somebody be both kind and severe? As I pondered this question, I couldn't help but thinking of Aslan from the Chronicles of Narnia. And if you've never read the Chronicles of Narnia, you really should. At least watch the movies. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this phenomenal series, The Chronicles of Narnia, in, in which he uh, had a character, a lion named Aslan, who represented God. And of course, the image comes out of Scripture where Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
And what Lewis did so masterfully was he described Aslan, this great lion, as both kind and severe. He was gentle and kind to the children in the books, but he was also terrifying to his enemies. He's severe, he's powerful to the wicked and gracious to his people. And so the question is, whose side are you on? God is patient and kind to his followers. He's opened up the kingdom uh, for us to enter and to be a part of his household of God. And the question is, are we going to live in his kindness, continue, follow his ways, produce those fruits that Israel failed to? Otherwise, we will be cut off just like they were. God is patient and kind to his followers. He knows that we're weak and frail people. And God knew exactly who you were when he saved you. It's not like your mistakes and your sins uh, surprise him. God knew everything about you, including all the ways that you would disappoint him before you ever existed. And yet he created you and he calls out to you to be his child. And somehow at the same time, God tell, uh, scripture tells us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. He will send judgment on those who hate him, on those who reject his authority. And so for each one of us, the question is, will we embrace Jesus or reject him? Will we submit to his authority over us or will we try to rule our, our, our own lives and live how we want? Are we living as tenants or owners? Are we seeking to produce fruit for our master? We're, we're either laboring for what we can get for ourselves or we're working for what we can produce for Christ. These wicked uh, tenants were selfish. They did not work to please, their, to please the owner. And because of their wickedness, they would be judged and the kingdom would be given to others. I don't often uh, quote people at length in my sermons, but Stephen Cole had a great section in a sermon that he preached on this text. It was so good, I thought it would share, share it with you all. He said, Jesus is showing us the unreasonable, illogical, superhuman patience of our gracious God. He sends his prophets to Israel over and over again looking for fruit. But the disobedient nation ignored, mistreated, and even killed some of these faithful servants. Yet in spite of this, God kept sending them over and over again as a demonstration of his abundant patience and grace. The history of Israel reveals the tragic wickedness of the human heart. No people were as privileged by God as that covenant nation, and yet repeatedly they turned away from God. While Moses was on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, Israel was in the valley below, caressing in front of a golden calf. Time and again, they grumbled against God in the wilderness. When they moved into the promised land, instead of living separately from the pagan nations around them, they imitated their idolatry and immorality. Yet, where sin abounded, God's grace superabounded. Far beyond any human expectations, God patiently sent prophet after prophet to warn his people to turn from their sins. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you should be able to look back at God's extravagant patience and grace in his dealings with you, and it ought to motivate you to serve him more zealously. How many times have I been self-centered, living for my own aims, not to bear fruit for my Lord, and yet he always keeps sending messengers to get me back on track. God sends us preachers who proclaim the truth of his word. He gives us the Bible, which we can read for ourselves. We see many other messengers in his church, friends who warn us by their lives and words of the need to live fruitful lives. God graciously sends us health problems to show us that we are frail and dependent on him. Signs of aging, gray hair, loss of youthful strength, the death of loved ones and friends to remind us 
that what is that what that the eternal is what matters. All of these gracious messengers, given over and over again, remind us that eternity is near and we must give an account. God's great patience in his dealings with us should motivate us to live accountably to him, bearing fruit with our lives. But the greatest motivation to fruitful living is not the many prophets that God sent. It is his final messenger, God's great love seen in sending his beloved son. This should motivate us to live for him.